Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new legal developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about a topic that comes up this time of year for schools in Missouri, and that is late spring hiring decisions. We're going to talk about the types of things that can go wrong with hires at this time of year and some of the associated legal issues. Schools often end up at this time of year scrambling a little to fill staffing needs for next school year. And maybe it's a resignation or maybe it's a late retirement. Just there are a number of issues that uh, can cause a school to face uh, the situation. Unfortunately, it's easy to make a misstep during the scramble. It may be a problem with a background check or the process we use for a background check. Uh, Maybe there's something that's popping up on social media that you wished had had popped up on social media prior to making the hire. Um, Maybe someone's asking for out of a contract that they've signed up for next year. And maybe it's uh, just something as simple as a, a statement that we learned that the employee made on their application that is, as it turns out, is false. But when it comes to late spring hiring, there are a number of things that can go sideways on you. And uh, if you aren't aware of the certain pitfalls or you don't follow the required process, that can lead to a number of issues. So with me today to talk through some of these issues is my partner, Emily Omohundro. Welcome back, Emily. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. Uh, it's good to see you, and it's good to talk about this one. I don't know if you like the title not uh, or not. It's uh, You Hired Who? 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 Uh, it kind of gives you a pit in your stomach when you hear that, right? You know, it's like, if they're serious anyway, uh, if somebody says that to you, um, it's probably not a good feeling anyway. Um, I think for this topic, maybe a, the best place to start, Emily, if we could, would be to get a little baseline information about the hiring process um, and how it works for Missouri schools. Uh, let's let's just start with uh, what are the primary statutory requirements when we do make a hire uh, in a Missouri school district? Sure. So uh, the board is required to approve all hires. So. Um, that's going to be one step that we have to take. Where that occurs in our hiring process is something we'll talk a little bit about um, as we talk about some of the pitfalls. But um, so board approval is required. It's a statutory requirement. And then also the there's a statute that requires the district to perform a background check. And Um, The background check has to be satisfactory, and we'll talk a little bit about that terminology too, I'm sure, Um, but the statute does specify what needs to go into the background check, so um, a basic case net search for the employee must be done. Uh, Also, an FBI, uh, Missouri State Highway Patrol criminal background check has to happen. And um, then also the Amy Hester law, which we refer to um, pretty often when we talk about hiring, is um, it requires that school employers check um, a teacher's 
prior school district employer. So we are tasked with looking back to determine who that prior school employer was and checking with that employer uh, to determine whether the teacher was involved in um, any sort of resignation or termination associated with sexual misconduct with a student. So those are going to be the statutory requirements. Um, and of course, in those and with those go a number of best practices as well. Okay. And possibly some uh, board policy requirements as well, right? Yes. So as we look at it, you mentioned satisfactory, and we, and we might as well dive into that a little bit. Um, the statute says we're going to do a satisfactory background check, right? And but it doesn't define what a, a sat, what is satisfactory, right? So that's sort of that's sort of mind blowing in the sense that we have this requirement to do a background check, but you know the statute doesn't say what types of things would be uh, unsatisfactory for a school employee. So, um, I mean, you would think they could at least give some examples, like we probably don't want to hire somebody that's a murderer, um, you know, but we don't have anything, we don't have anything in the statute that says what is or is not satisfactory. So that's really up to the district um, to come up with a system that uh, and maybe it looks like a matrix, but um, what is and isn't satisfactory when something crops up, for instance, on a criminal background check. So when we check somebody's criminal background, what kinds of things are we going to flag as absolutely not, uh, maybe not depending on the circumstances, or this is going to be all around acceptable. And we've worked with some districts to create those kinds of um, lists. And, you know, for your district, it may be that we're not going to hire anybody that's ever been convicted of a felony, even if it's 25 years old or 30 years old. Um, you know, and so it's very district specific. And it may even be um, what is considered satisfactory may even be job description specific. So for instance, we might not want to hire someone as a bookkeeper who has a history, a criminal history that indicates that they were writing um, you know, we're forging checks or we're stealing. Um, and we may not want to hire a bus driver who had a careless and imprudent driving um, record. And then, you know, for teachers, of course, you know, we, we're not, there's a little bit less, um, in my mind, a little bit less worry when it comes to teachers because there are certain crimes or for instance, child abuse and neglect checks that we do. Um, but there are certain crimes that would preclude them from having a certificate any longer. So um, there are some things that would automatically remove them from our prospective employee pool. But um, you know, we certainly wanna take a close look at what those actual background check results are and have a system in place that we can go to and look look at that we can uniformly apply to everyone within a particular job category so that we're not making some arbitrary decision about what is or isn't okay or satisfactory. So you, it's like you have a rubric and you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, we're going to look at this, uh, you know, we're going to ex exclude individuals that maybe have certain types of offenses within a certain period of time of application. Um, maybe uh, the, the, um, other things is, and you mentioned this, but it relates to the job duties, just a number of different things that you might build into that. I know the EEOC has got some guidelines along those uh, lines, but um, 
you know, one of the things that I want to come back to that you mentioned, you were talking about the types of, of checks that are required. And you, you have to kind of break it down a little bit more in the sense that uh, you talked about criminal background checks. Uh, there's case net, which is a required check also by statute, right? Right. And then, and then there's uh, finally the one that you emphasize, which is um, relatively new, and that is that you have to check with Desi about the uh, prior school employers. And so those, with all of those things that you have to do, it's really more of an issue of these are procedural steps that you have to take. These are the hoops you have to jump through, but it doesn't really tell you what the result's going to be, right? That's still in your judgment. Right. And one thing I wanted to mention about the statutory requirement to check with DESE and the prior school district employer. So that requirement is something that we have to do before an offer of employment is made. So a lot of times districts don't run those criminal background checks or check case net um, or the child abuse and neglect registry until after an offer is made. That's not uncommon. And the statute that requires the criminal background checks doesn't say that we have to do the criminal background check um, prior to offer. But the statute that requires us to look at the prior school district employer, that requires um, that we do that before we even make an offer. Not before board approval, but before we make the offer of employment. So that's just something to know as you are you know, as a leader, if you're creating or, or amending your hiring process, that DESE check has to go up higher in the timeline, earlier in the timeline, perhaps, than some of the other, the other checks. Um, I mean, I think we would kind of like to see that criminal background check, all those background check requirements occurring as early as possible um, so that we don't have a signed contract when we get something back that's problematic. Uh, but but that prior employer check is prior to making an offer, yes. And, and you can go on Desi's website to do that, that check with the uh, applicant's social security number and their name, and you can um, just check for each school year uh, that you, you get to refine the field by school year on the website, and then it will tell you uh, the website will tell you, oh, this is where they worked in 2021. This is where they worked in 1920. So you can go back and look at that, which I also think is generally handy because most applicants are, are required on the applications to list, you know, their prior employers. It sure would be nice to be able to see if they've disclosed all those to us as well. So on, on that particular issue, Emily, I want to kind of break that down. When, are you saying that the requirement by statute is to not only check with DESI, but also check with the prior employer, or is it just simply to do the check with DESI? So it's, it, the requirement is to check with both. So the district- Prior to making has, the offer is what you're saying. Exactly, prior to making the offer. So contacting DESI to determine the school district or charter school that previously employed such employee, and then the hiring district must request from the most recent school employer um, the information under the Amy Hester Act, so information about sexual misconduct with students. Okay, and so 
one of the issues that I can, I've had come up and I can see it being a problem is, okay, we've got an applicant who's told us that they don't want us to contact their current employer. Um, yet we have the statutory requirement to do that very thing. It sounds like, um, it's just kind of one of those chicken and egg problems. It sounds like to me, that's irreconcilable in some ways. We're going to have to make the check. Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, the statute's really clear that the district, the hiring district has to request this information from the most recent district. So, um, a current employer would certainly be fitting that bill and we're going to have to do it in order to comply with the law. Good, good. I think those are all really good points and ones that I, frankly, I don't know that uh, school districts have really caught on to all these specific requirements, but what happens, Emily, if they don't follow those and they end up with somebody that maybe does have a history of sexual misconduct or something of that like in a previous school district? Um, you know, <laughs> what kind of risk do they have? So I think that creates a huge risk of exposure um, because the district, the hiring district did not do their statutory due diligence that's required. And I think we get into big problems there because, um, the school official who is charged with doing that is uh, probably by policy the superintendent or designee if you happen to have you know if you're running that through perhaps an assistant superintendent of HR or whoever that might be so um, failing to comply with the statute creates uh, an issue about insurance coverage potentially if there's you know if we hire this employee and they engage in sexual misconduct and the victim files a suit against the district and it's determined that the uh, district failed to comply with the provisions of the Amy Hester Act by checking back with past school employers um, I think that the insurance carrier may say this was a very clear requirement under the statute and you did not comply with that so um, you know we're going to reserve our right not to cover you for this um, so I think that's certainly an issue and um, a plaintiff's attorney would have an absolute heyday in a deposition asking the district whether they did their due diligence in reading that statute word for word, I'd say. Okay. Um, you know, I do think that, that a lot of people make the offer subject to the uh, satisfactory background check, but then, you know, the problem may be that uh, we end up with a number of different issues associated with that, given that you have this statutory requirement to actually uh, do it before you make the offer. Um, that it, it's, it, it strikes me as odd that, that the criminal background check could actually come after the offer, but yet the previous employer check has to be done yeah, prior to offer. But uh, uh, we have what we have on the books. So. Right. I want to shift gears, if if I may, Emily. You know, we talked about, you know, the child abuse uh, registry uh, as a check and CaseNet, and um, you know some of these others. There's a separate one that is a little bit controversial, if you will, and that is social media checks. Nice. Um, and there are different philosophies out there, and I appreciate that. But what's your thinking about uh doing some sort of social media check maybe even just a google search uh of open sources on individual applicants what do you what do you think well as a 
parent and a board member and a school attorney, I can assure everyone listening that if you are not looking someone up, if you're not Googling them or looking at their social media, pretty much everyone else in your community probably is. So, um, you know, you get mom and dad get the teacher assignment for their brand new kindergartner and want to know what our teacher looks like and how to recognize that person on the first day of school and maybe what they're all about. And it's just going to be the natural inclination of people in your community to Google someone or look them up on Facebook. So knowing that all of those stakeholders are engaging in that activity, it seems to me that it would be pretty big error for the district not to try to get out ahead of that and do it themselves. Okay. And so, and I think the controversy surrounds the idea that, uh, okay, if you're doing social media checks, you might see something that would create the opportunity for you to, in effect, discriminate against a potential applicant. Maybe there's something there where, you know, it's a religious expression or perhaps something else that involves a protected classification. Um, we're not saying that those things should are fair to consider at all, right? I mean, you're still right. you still have to follow your policies, which say you're not going to discriminate, <laughs> right? Um, but at the same time, uh, you don't want to go in blind, as I think what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when someone comes in person for an interview, we can observe as the person making the hire probably all sorts of things that would indicate to us whether or not they would fall into a protected class. Um, skin color, they may be wearing a religious necklace, uh, that an employee may be visibly pregnant. So looking them up on social media, there is no such thing as this, you know, virtual reality anymore. It is just reality. So um, I, I don't think that you know, we need to follow our policies, of course, um, regarding non-discrimination and follow those best practices. We just need to extend that mantra into how we look into applicants' social media um, and online presence. Well, let, let me kind of take that scenario just a little bit further, if I may. And, and this is kind of a tough one, I think, but it goes to the issue of late spring hires. You know, sometimes we make these hires and we get them approved by the board and then something pops up. And and it may be that there was something that you you did a social media check and it wasn't on social media yet, but then suddenly it pops up so that as you announce that we've hired, you know, this particular uh, you know, teacher for this particular grade level in this building, uh, you know, and and as you said, parents are doing the search and they find find this uh, recent post by this teacher on social media that's a problem. I mean, what can we do at that point? And what are the steps that a school leader needs to be thinking about? So I think the first thing that we are going to do is determine whether the contract has actually been executed, uh, because that dictates to us what our options are in terms of due process. So if the contract has not been signed you know, if it's maybe it's been approved by the board, but it hasn't been signed and returned by the teacher, um, you know, we would have more options in that case. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second. But if, you know, if the contract is signed, then we're really looking at the same amount of due process that we would have to provide to any employee with a contract of employment. Now, if you 
if we don't have a contract that is signed, we could reconvene the board and rescind the offer, depending on, we would want to talk about what that troubling content on social media was, of course, um, just to make sure that we're not in a murky area in terms of rationale for rescinding that offer. But that is an option if the contract hasn't been signed. Now, if the contract has been signed, we're really looking at all of those statutory reasons that we would be able to use in order to terminate any teacher who's under a contract of employment. Okay. So it basically it comes down to once we've got a valid binding contract that's been executed or signed by uh, both the board president and uh, the uh, employee, as well as the board secretary, I suppose, then we've got something that, okay, we've got to treat it the same way we would if, if that teacher had been with us yes. for some time, right? Absolutely. Okay. So um, – the uh, you mentioned contract and and uh, how that works and, and and one of the things I mentioned at the top is, you know, what do you, what do you do about some scenarios that develop this time of year regarding contracting and and specifically I kind of like to talk Emily about releases from contracts and how that works um, because that's an issue that we run into this time of year, um, you know. What kinds of things do you see school leaders consulting with us about that relate to the release of contracts of employees? Maybe maybe they're seeking a release of uh, or finding uh, out, trying to find out about what happens if they hire this employee and they're under contract with somebody else, some other school district specifically. You know, how does that all work? So the first thing that I want to mention right out of the gate, because we've gotten a few questions about it this year, is that tenure teachers have until June 1st to resign, until technically, I guess, the end of the day on June 1st. So even if we have a practice of sending out contracts to tenured teachers and having them sign them, it, even if they've signed a contract for next year, they still have until that, you know, they have that June 1 day grace period, so to speak. So if we're talking about an, either a tenured teacher who's trying to resign after June 1, or we're talking about a new or probationary teacher who has already signed a contract with us, then we are looking at our policies and the actual content of the contract to dictate next steps. So um, we have a binding contract and the teacher asks to be released from it. Then we go look at our policies in the contract and say, um, all right, what are the circumstances under which release would be appropriate? So some school districts have a liquidated damages provision within their policies and contracts that indicate that in order for a teacher to be considered for release after having entered into a contract, there's a certain amount um, of liquidated damages that needs to be paid. And so if you have that as a district, the first question in our minds is, well, has the teacher submitted us a, you know, a check or a money order or, um, you know, I suppose somebody might pay in that in cash. But anyway, um, you know, I think that the first question is, have they submitted that? And if they have, then we go on and look at the provisions of policy that would give us guideposts for whether or not release would be appropriate. Most policies, um, in addition, if you do or if you don't have liquidated damages provision, require that there be a suitable replacement uh, for the teacher prior to the board releasing the teacher. So that's something to consider. 
Um, and then also some policies also have uh, reasons that the board considers appropriate for asking for that kind of release. So it may be, for instance, the transfer of a spouse to a, to a different job in a different location. It may be health related reasons. So, you know, those things are things that may be hard coded into your policy as reasons that may be considered acceptable. Um, but the board is not required to release anyone from a contract. And that kind of comes down to the practicality of it all. If we have a staff, you know, if we have a teacher who's signed a contract and they want out of it and they're telling us this, whether it's two months before the start of the school year or two days, um, are we going to hold that person's feet to the fire and require them to come to a job that we know that they do not want to do? Um, and and it, what does that do in terms of what's best for kids? So in looking at that, you know, we kind of have to go through that whole process and figure out ultimately what our goal is with regard to that request and how to effectuate that. Good, good. Great points, I think. Um, you know, I do want to uh, pivot into one last issue that I want to talk through with you that relates to hiring, and that is one I mentioned at the top, which was uh, what if you have or discover after somebody's been hired, been voted upon by the board, and then you realize that there's been a statement made on their application that turns out to be false. Um, it's kind of analogous to the situation we were talking about with the background checks and and after they've entered the contract. But, you know, how do you work through that uh, situation where you've discovered that there's something there? And it may be, you know, any number of things. We've had it on a number of occasions where somebody lied about the fact that they resigned in lieu of a non-renewal. Uh, we've had people lie about the fact that they have uh, never been convicted of, of something. You know, it's, it's a variety of things that may show up as a false statement on an application, but you know, what, once you do have somebody in particular, somebody that's under contract and they do that, because I think it's pretty easy to deal with an employee at will, uh, you know, one of our classified staff members, but if it's a contracted employee, how do you work through that? So first as a matter of best practice, we would love to see the application have a very specific um, sentence or two about the consequences of withholding information or providing false information on the application. So the tricky part about applicants is that the only thing that they know about the rules of conduct for staff members of the school district is what is in front of them on the application. So it's it's really difficult to hold an applicant accountable for policies that they've never seen or read. So that's why we want on the application something about um, the requirement to provide all information and not to provide any false information and that the consequences of that would violate the policies of the district and would be cause you know, for termination from contract. And I think putting that out there um, in bold somewhere would be really important for that on just from a best practices perspective. But let's say we did that or we didn't do it or whatever. And then we find out that we have an applicant um, who has not been honest with us. Then the first question is, and you kind of alluded to this, is we go back and look and see, have we already 
you know, got a contract with this person? Um, and if the answer is no, then that makes our jobs easier. But if the answer is yes, then I think we need to take some pretty specific steps, which is identify the false statements or the withholding of information in the application. And once we've identified one thing that isn't correct, I personally would want to go back with pretty fine tooth comb and look at grades, school districts that, you know, school districts work for, uh, places degrees were earned. I would want to check on all that so that we can have a pretty good idea of whether we have one issue or we've got a, a bunch of issues. And then um, bring, I would bring the applicant or the new employee in and direct them to provide you with a written explanation of the misinformation on the application, which gets to some of the examples that you gave, Dwayne. Um, you know, for instance, one that we see a lot is when someone is told that they need to report all convictions, um, you know, guilty pleas, that sort of thing, and they got a suspended imposition of sentence on a particular charge. And the criminal attorney for the employee probably would have said, well, good news, you got an SIS, suspended imposition of sentence, and that means that this is going to come completely off of your record after two years, so you don't have to report this to employers. And the, the background checks that school districts receive due to uh, the sort of heightened clearance level that school districts have school districts can still see whether someone had that conviction. It doesn't come off of their record. So you may very well have an employee who thinks, well, my criminal attorney told me I didn't need to put that on there. So I'm going to just leave it off. So you may get an explanation like that, but that's the kind of written explanation that we need. We need them to explain themselves and um, take that written statement and determine, okay, what are our next steps here? Is this something that is a deal breaker was this an honest mistake? Was this, you know, purpose purposefully um, trying to conceal something from us? And you know, one of the conversations that we've had with um, a number of school leaders is, well, you know, they just lied about a DWI that they got whenever they were 22, and that was, you know, eight years ago or something. It's really not what they lied about that's the issue. It's the fact that there was this concealment and the concept that we need to decide whether or not we're gonna set a precedent for tolerating withholding information or, or providing false information on an, on an employment application. Because if it's okay to do that about a 10 year old DWI, is it okay to do that about, I mean, is it okay to leave off prior employers if we got non-renewed, you know, that kind of thing. So we just need to decide what our standards gonna be. And then you have to kind of figure out um you know, the hoops we have to jump through in order to terminate somebody who's now under contract, right? And Absolutely. and I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, we only have a certain number of statutory reasons that we can use immoral conduct, for instance, or willful or persistent violation of board policies, those types of things. And that's why you were talking about the idea that, well, an applicant wouldn't necessarily know what your staff conduct policy says. And so it's it gets a little messy there. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, Absolutely. I think it really does because, yeah, which is why I think it's important to have on the application that very clear statement that, you know, lying on an application would be a willful violation of the district's policies. And um, so we would use that as a, 
part of the statutory basis for termination um, and or the concept of immoral conduct, um, which isn't really not, you know, that's not a reason that we go to very often for uh, when we're thinking about teacher terminations. But it, in this case, um, you know, lying on an application is something that we could certainly cast as immoral conduct in the sense that, um, well, it's a complicated analysis that would not be appropriate for a 20 minute podcast, but um, you know, we have to look at a number of factors. But one of the factors that we would look at when we're talking about immoral conduct is whether the continued employment of an employee who's engaged in a certain kind of conduct would encourage um, others to engage in that sort of conduct. So, which is kind of, you know, the, along the same lines of setting that precedent. I mean, are we really okay with people withholding information and, you know, we need to make sure that we're not encouraging others to engage in that same kind of misconduct. All good stuff, Emily. I, I guess one last issue that uh, I'm going to open the floor to you for a second and just say, you know, are, are there things that as you talk to school leaders, uh, even school board members about spring hiring decisions, late spring hiring decisions, and some of those uh, pitfalls that you can run into, any general words of advice that you would give them? Sure. So I think that when the, the number of conversations I've had where somebody, you know, a school leader says, you know, we're having an issue with this employee, they were a late hire. <laughs> so I think that, you know, if at the time of hire, we understand that, um, you know, you are, if you are in a crunch and you're picking your fifth choice because choices one through four weren't options, um, go ahead and make sure that you're having conversations with whoever will be supervising that employee uh, about any concerns that may have arisen, whether that was during the reference check portion or the interview or on the application and letting your leader know, your building leader, your supervisor know, this is something that we're going to just need to keep an eye on so that we start off the year from a place of accountability and documentation um, and don't allow someone who is not meeting the mark or who isn't best for kids to continue if they become a problem. So I think that that's, you know, that's certainly one, that's certainly one thing. And then I think it's also a good time of year to go ahead and examine your systems and your processes for doing things like what, you know, what does our application look like? Is it where we want it to be? What does our background check process look like? Is it where we want it to be? Because from a board member perspective, if we run into problems during the hiring process or, you know, after the hire has been made, and I, I think the board is going to want to know well, how did we not see this earlier on a background check? Or, um, you know, if they were, if you were concerned with them during the interview, why did we, well, how did we make it this far? So I think having those processes in place and being able to explain that to the board, if things do go sideways is really important and also helps the district protect itself from any kind of claims an employee or an employee or an applicant may make about the hiring process or uh, a termination situation, we can point and say, well, this was the uniform system that we used and we applied it to you as well. Yeah, that's 
great. Those are great parting thoughts, uh, Emily. And I want to thank you for taking time today. I know you're extremely busy this time of year, so I appreciate you taking the time. And thank you for your insights uh, regarding late spring hiring processes and pitfalls. And we thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today. And we hope you'll follow and share our Ed Council podcasts on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website. Just Google Ed Council, that's E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.